0: This is exactly right. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's Journey has all of that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. On January 1st, 1845, a group of concerned neighbors and a doctor stared down at the lifeless body of Sarah Hart. Her children continued to sleep inside the cottage as their mother, their protector, laid dead, murdered by their father, John Tall. There were two glasses on the kitchen table. One contained porter, another was empty. Tull had vanished into the winter night after rushing past a concerned neighbor who noted his dark, distinctive Quaker garb. He was racing to catch a train at the nearby station, the 7.42 p.m. that would pull up shortly. Remember, he knew the schedule well because he had visited Sarah frequently over the years to pay her child support. The doctor's cousin was a local reverend, and he had sent for the local parish constable. The pair raced to catch the Quaker before he disappeared on a train to London. Tall had been in trouble before. He had been caught being devious. And yet, as Meg Edwards says, this didn't seem to deter him.
1: He knows what this feels like. He knows this, he was quite comfortable entering that feeling again.
0: But perhaps it's because the last time he was caught, his punishment was actually a benefit.
1: I feel like if you are punished to a point where you are transported for 14 years, and let's face it, the only thing that comes of that is that you make an incredible life for yourself. You better yourself. You make an impact. He comes back arguably more successful than he was before. Why would he learn that punishment was ever going to affect him in a super negative
0: way. As John Tall ran to the platform, the only thing he was likely thinking about was escape. But he could sense that he was being chased. The men were in pursuit. They were trying to catch John Tall.
2: The clock is ticking, ticking, The train, the 7.42pm train from Slough, is heading off to London. That was his train? Was he on it? They look around and they can't see him. Then suddenly, just before the train is about to depart, they see his distinctive Quaker garb coming out of the railway house, the place that people stood in to keep away from the weather. The reception area, or whatever. They saw this man in Quaker garb come out of there, head to the first class carriages, hop on. The bell jangled and the you know, siren whistled, and the train pulled out of the station and was gone. What did they do next? Because they didn't know who he was or where he was going. London, in those days and still is, is the hub for all these railway lines crisscrossing the countryside. They all—it's like a like a spider in its legs. London is the body, and the legs go in all sorts of directions.
0: So tell me again, this would be so that he would have gotten on this train. -hmm. So he wouldn't wouldn't have had stops then, right? Going from Slough to... I don't think so. Meg Edwards and I are on the train back from our visit to Slough, and now we're riding the same line that John Tall took that night back in 1845. It's a direct trip into the heart of London... Do you think Paddington would have been busy the station when, in 1845?
3: When are Is it a busing station? Uh, it
0: wouldn't be comparable to like
1: what we see as busy today, but yeah, absolutely for the time.
0: She's right. Paddington Station was one of the main hubs in the London train system. It would be a busy place, the sort of place where a murderer could vanish into the crowded train station or even change trains and disappear in any direction. I'm sure that as John Tall sat there on this same train line, he was planning his next steps. And you said that he was in first class, is that right?
1: Yeah, he boarded, bought a first class ticket um, and was almost certainly the only Quaker in first class. <laughs> so it was quite easy to spot. <laughs> Which was a faux pas. I still don't understand that. I think it just wouldn't have occurred to him to wear anything else. It was his everyday clothing.
0: Um, So this would have been a very nerve-wracking trip for him, for John Tall, coming back. Or maybe he thought this was going to be easy because nobody had been caught before.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, you've got to get your head into that zone of... um, It wasn't a given that you commit a crime and you get caught. It was probably much more likely that he would never get caught. Maybe I'm just a bit cynical. I would have imagined that this was quite an exciting trip, (laughs) as well as nerve-wracking. But yeah, he's certainly feeling a lot of emotions on this train. We are now
3: approaching London
1: Paddington. I mean, we've just boarded and we're already there, basically. (laughs) Whereas it would have been 40 minutes. Why would it just have been slower? Slower, I think probably new tracks as well. This is pretty direct.
0: Back in Slough, the reverend and the parish constable were frantic.
2: So they're standing around going, what on earth... we do? And then somebody noticed the electric telegraph lines running beside the railway lines heading towards London. And they realised that this was the solution to their problem. By some stroke of luck, the
1: telegraph line was between those two stations.
0: The telegraph is a mystery to me. I knew that it was a quick way to pass on a message without having to carry it miles away by hand. But I assumed that the telegraph was a 20th century invention. It was developed in the mid-19th century. And it might not have caught on had it not been for Sarah Hart's murder.
2: So until Newsday 1845, the designers or the patent holders of the world's first patented electric telegraph were struggling to get commercial interest. Why? Why? People didn't like the number of zeros attached to the idea of the costs of establishing this electric telegraph. And so even though it was going to be incredibly useful for people, they were unable to grasp the advantages in a way that outweighed the costs. And they mainly saw it as a toy.
0: So not for practical use.
2: People used to come along to the electric telegraph office and send a message as a bit of fun and a message would come back. And while the government started to see its advantages and the Admiralty was setting an electric telegraph line that travelled from London down to the Southampton or one of the other ports down there so they could send messages to the naval authorities.
0: Carol Baxter says that the general public in England had not yet embraced it, and that included the directors of the railways.
2: And they were the ones who most needed to understand the advantages of it, because they could run the electric telegraph wires along the lines beside the railway lines, and the corridor was already there. So Until this day, the electric telegraph operators were hardly getting any interest.
0: So they got no financial support.
2: And in fact, the Times newspaper, as an example of advertising the product in terms of press coverage, was barely ever mentioning it. And then this day, this man committed this murder and everything changed.
0: John Tall sat inside his first-class carriage, quietly gazing at the towns as they sped along.
1: He has the ticket. He has a first-class
0: ticket. A number
1: of respectable people saw him, people who didn't know each other.
0: John Tall sighed. He had gotten away with it. As he watched the small villages pass by his window, it's unlikely that Tall noticed something running alongside the train tracks. Those electric telegraph lines. Despite the lack of general interest, the inventors of the telegraph had tried one last time by appealing to the English government, and they had their first small success.
2: So they established a single electric telegraph line that ran from Paddington Railway Station in London to Slough near Windsor Castle. The idea being that Parliament and the Queen, Queen Victoria, could communicate very quickly between them if they needed to. This
0: is incredible. John Tall was in the only place in the world that had a telegraph with someone who could work a telegraph at both ends.
2: Of all the places in the entire world at that time, there was only one electric telegraph line that could communicate a random message at a moment's notice.
0: There were other electric telegraph lines in the world, but they were what's called stop-and-go signals. They told the trains when they could proceed or when they needed to
2: stop. It couldn't communicate anything else. So this is the significance of that stretch of railway telegraph. There were only two electric telegraph machines. There was one stretch of wires, and they went between Slough and Paddington Railway Station. By
0: this time, the superintendent of the railway had rushed to the station.
2: So by this stage, they had the support, obviously, of the railway staff at Slough Station. And they crafted the message that was to be sent along the telegraph lines to London in the hope that somebody could identify him at the other end.
0: Crime historian Angela Buckley says that police had another stroke of luck because the two operators at Slough and Paddington were on duty that evening, and they were brothers.
3: What's also interesting about this case is the fact that the two operators of the Telegraph are brothers. So you get Thomas Holm, who's the one at Paddington, who's the license holder of the Telegraph there, and his brother Richard is the operator at Slough Station.
0: The superintendent at the Slough Station dictated the message to the first brother, Richard Holm, who was sitting at the Telegraph.
2: A murder has just been committed at Salt Hill, and the suspected murderer was seen to take a first-class ticket for London by the train which left Slough at 7.42 p.m. He is in the garb of a Quaker.
0: Richard Holm paused at the word Quaker, but the superintendent finished the sentence.
2: He is in the garb of a Quaker with a brown greatcoat on, which reaches nearly down to his feet. He's in the last compartment of the second first-class carriage.
0: But the clerk had stopped because he couldn't type Quaker properly. There was a
2: problem. The message was not clear at all, because in these early days of the electric telegraph, they didn't have the letter Q as one of the letters that they could sound out on the machine.
0: No queue available, how odd, particularly considering who the British monarch was at the time.
1: There's no queue on the board. You would have thought in a time where Queen Victoria's on the throne, that would have been the first letter they put in.
2: Now, I find this particularly odd because the country was ruled by a queen, and the whole point of putting the electric telegraph between Paddington and Slough was so Parliament could communicate with the queen.
0: Anyway, there was no use in quibbling over a missing letter that New Year's Day. A suspected murderer was about to get off the train in Paddington and disappear. Richard home at the Slough station made a quick decision.
2: They couldn't send the letter Q. So the guy did the obvious thing. The letters Q-U represent the sounds K-W. So he sent the message down with the letters K-W-A-K-E-R. And, of course, his uh, partner on the other end in Paddington thought, what is going on? What is this word? So he sent back a message that essentially said doesn't compute...
0: So, Thomas, home at Paddington Station, sent his brother in Slough a message back, inviting him to try again.
2: The electric telegraph operator at the Slough end sent it back again. And the guy got exactly the same letters. And that's when he sounded out the letters as children are told to do. And when you do it, you get Quaker. And suddenly, when you realise someone's dressed as a Quaker, it makes sense.
0: Thomas Home had figured it out. He snatched up his pencil and pad.
2: So the rest of the message came through and the electric telegraph operator in Paddington picked up the bit of paper and raced it through to the superintendent of the railway station.
0: John Tall had just arrived in London.
1: They are on the platform. So it's it's amazing that within the the journey was 40 minutes. They got there to send the telegraph. They had less than half an hour to send the message, to receive the message, and to be ready at the platform waiting for the train to come
0: in. The police at the London station knew which carriage he was in. They
1: know he's bought a first-class ticket, and the message was about him being in the second carriage, the second first-class carriage, something like that. So they know whereabouts to look on the platform and where on the train he'll be getting off. They see a a man exactly matching the description get off the train at the other end.
0: But remember, they couldn't arrest him. The message read clearly that he was a suspect, not the confirmed killer. Maybe they could track him.
3: So they're already losing valuable time. Then they go to one of the Great Western Railway police officers. I think that's uh, Inspector William Wiggins, and he takes charge. from From Paddington, it's the railway policeman
0: who takes charge first, and he sets off. How many different agencies are we talking about in London in 1845?
3: Well, first, you've got the railway police. Each railway company has their own police force from the beginning of the railways in 1830. Their purpose is really to maintain law and order and to make sure that the trains run unimpeded. So, for example, you know, if there's somebody on the line or that kind of thing. So that's the purpose of policing the railways. And the Telegraph is, is partly an extension of that.
0: So investigating violent murders was not really in their wheelhouse. If it is about crime, it's usually about theft and pickpocketing.
3: So it's not particularly to investigate serious crimes such as murder.
0: If you read a short summary about this case, it seems very neat and tidy. A suspected killer is caught at Paddington Station thanks to the Telegraph. But Angela Buckley says it was really a mess.
3: It's really complex because it sounds really well coordinated, but in fact it's not coordinated at all because you've got various police officers from different types of forces. You've got the railway police there, you've got the local police, you've got a parish constable there, is a completely different form of policing, and you've got then, you know, the, the metropolitan police get involved as well. So
0: the Met's there too. It's really disparate and it's
3: really complex and it's all haphazard. So it sounds like it's very slick. He was, was found because of the telegraph, but of course, in reality, it's not quite that smooth as an operation.
0: Inspector Wiggins with the railway police wasn't equipped to investigate a murder, and this wasn't even his jurisdiction
2: problem is, the message didn't say they were to apprehend the man. And even though the railways had their own policemen, they had no control over anything except what happened on railway property.
0: There was a jurisdiction issue, and there usually was a communications issue. Angela Buckley described a system that the police in London used in the 1800s called the route system. They would write down a description of a suspect and literally run on foot from one officer to another. It was very inefficient.
3: Then in 1842, there's a very shocking case of a, a man called Daniel Good, who murders his common law wife in London, and he goes on the run. And because of their poor system of communication, because of the root papers that I described, they can't track him. I'm guessing this was a big case in the press. It's a huge case because she was badly mutilated. It was a horrible case and they can't find him. And all the police are all trying to running about, trying to, you know, trying to look for him and they can't coordinate. And he goes on the run for about 10 days and then he's found by luck in Kent. Um, and also there's an attempt, another attempt on the life of Queen Victoria shortly afterwards. So at that point, they decide to create the, uh, the detective branch of the Metropolitan Police.
0: The Telegraph might have been very helpful in that case. The new machine had been invaluable in this case, except that now the police were already stymied. Carol Baxter and Angela Buckley explain how surveillance went, which was not
2: very well. The murder hadn't happened on railway property, so they couldn't actually act. They decided to follow the man and see where he went so that they could then alert the authorities and the authorities decide what to do in the aftermath. So the railway superintendent put his coat over the sergeant's shoulders to hide his police uniform and sent him off after John Tall. They try and apprehend him, but they keep losing sight of him. So they follow
3: into a coffee house and then they lose sight of him.
0: They weren't having much luck. Tall was losing them even without trying.
3: Not very good surveillance, has to be said. But you have to remember as well, there are very few detectives at this time. And these police officers were not detectives. They were regular police officers. You know, they weren't particularly skilled.
0: But the next morning, things turned around for the officers.
3: They go into the coffee house and they get a description from them. And they finally just find him from luck, really. Basically casting around different places.
0: They confronted John Tall that morning in London. The police placed handcuffs on him and explained that he was being arrested for the murder of Sarah Hart, his former lover and the mother of his children.
2: I mean, it it really is utterly extraordinary that they got him. And again, he was again unmasked by his mask. The outfit was the giveaway. If he had just stepped onto the first class carriages, there's no way they could have identified him. They wouldn't have even known what to look for.
0: It wasn't like there was a photograph of him. It was 1845.
2: So the whole Quaker uniform all along was such a pivotal part in this story. The whole Quakerism was such a pivotal part of the story and in terms of his crime, the reasons for his crime, and ultimately the murder.
0: As he stood there in handcuffs, John Tall glared at the officers and offered a smug response. He says, um, you must be mistaken. My
1: station in life places me above suspicion. It's the Quaker defense. I think that is such an arrogant thing to say, but actually quite a quick-witted thing to say. He's got a defense ready, and, and that really, I think, summarizes his entire defense
0: case. It was as if he were saying, the Quakers saved me to an extent once before. Why wouldn't they do it again? And perhaps they would. At the Metropolitan Police Station in London, detectives questioned John Tall extensively about the murder of Sarah Hart.
2: He insists that he didn't do it, he'd never been to Slough, he didn't know anyone at Slough.
0: Then police loaded Tall back onto the train, leaving from Paddington, heading back to Slough.
2: And then they take him back to Slough, and of course people could identify him from there, including the lady next door. have the body.
3: And then there's the various analyses of Sarah Hart's remains and the lots of medicine bottles that are taken both from her cottage and from his home in Berkhamstead.
0: They had a toxicology report, which was a little problematic.
2: There are no signs of wounds on the body. So there's no gunshot or knife wounds or strangulation or beating or anything else. So they figure that he's likely, that Sarah Hart was likely to have been poisoned. So they send her stomach contents. They do the autopsy in Slough, but they send her stomach contents to a chemist in London. And this guy has never tested a murder victim for poisons. What? So it does seem a little bit ironic that they chose him of all people. The main chemist
3: in London, I read in the Reading Mercury, said that it was the first time he'd analysed the remains of a a victim who died in this way. So that's not a very good starting point, really.
2: And they didn't know what poison. So he just started with the obvious ones and went through one poison after another.
0: The search for poison in a bottle was quite a laborious process.
3: Although there are some tests for poisons at the time, toxicology is very much in its infancy. And, um, and this is really done by not exactly trial and error, but very much by a process of elimination, you know, where they try one thing and they try another thing and then they, you know, they try different reagents to see how the remains react, you know, or the substance reacts with things.
2: So it is a kind of scientific trial and error, really. And it was right at the end when they decided to test for prussic acid.
0: Do we have any idea why they waited until the end?
2: Nobody had smelt bitter almonds. And normally in the event of a, anything to do with prussic acid, you would smell bitter almonds. So that was one of the reasons it was left to the end of the testing process. And when they tested it, they got the bright blue, prussic blue flush in the liquid that told them that yes, she had prussic acid in her stomach. How much? They couldn't really tell.
0: So the chemist in London confirmed that Sarah Hart had been poisoned with prussic acid, cyanide. Author Neil Bradbury is an expert on deadly poisons. He says that the autopsy of Sarah's body would have revealed that she likely suffered a very painful death.
4: Most people, if they're poisoned with cyanide, are given a compound, usually potassium cyanide, which is swallowed, gets into the stomach, and when it reacts with the acid in the stomach, produces another chemical called hydrocyanic acid, which is a gas, but it's also very toxic and will cause severe burning.
0: That sounds terrible.
4: So if you go into an individual that you suspect as having cyanide poisoning and look at their stomach, it's usually very corroded because the hydrocyanic acid that's produced starts eating away at the stomach lining and can even go up into the esophagus and will cause frothing of the mouth um, that people typically associate with cyanide poisoning. That's because the cyanide is getting into the lungs, reacting with the fluid in the lungs, and causing it to froth.
0: Sarah Hart had been frothing at the mouth when they found her dying. John Tall had to have known that it would have been an excruciating death. Author Deborah Blum has written extensively about poisons. It's a non-confrontational method of dealing with an enemy, right? You can do it, you can step away. You are going to know that you're going to be doing physical harm, depending... I mean, you're killing the person, but some poisons are acutely painful, right? Poisoners have control over how painful their victims' deaths could be. And so when you're picking that poison, you're picking it partly in a vindictive way. So when you have someone who kills with a strychnine or a or a cyanide, they know they're going to cause a painful death, right? And they also know that's a bitter compound. So if you're going to poison someone with one of those poisons, you have to put it in something that covers up that jolt of bitterness. Like a glass of porter. And as I said earlier, prussic acid was a risky murder weapon for John Tall to choose.
3: You know, actually administering poison to somebody and watching them die, it can't be an easy option, can it? Because, you know, it might not have worked. It must have been pretty traumatic. I know he left.
0: And it didn't work the first time he tried to kill her, allegedly. For the record, John Tall denied all of it. But after witnesses recognized him as the Quaker who had visited Sarah Hart often, he finally admitted to knowing her. But he certainly framed their relationship as poisoned. He told the police, That wretched woman
1: was in my service for over two years. She was a bad woman. She said she would make away with herself if I didn't give her the money.
0: Make away with herself... She was threatening to take her own life. John Tall painted a picture of a scorned woman desperate for attention and money. When Tall refused to give her either, she decided to die by suicide. Tall said that Sarah Hart held a small vial of what he presumed was a poison over her glass of beer. As he protested, she screamed, I will, I will. When he again refused to give her any money, she poured the white substance from the vial into the glass of Porter and quickly drank it. He said, she lay down on the rug and I walked out. That might sound like a silly explanation, but it's not as silly as what would come up at Tall's trial. At least, suicide was plausible. A good defense attorney would say, how do we know that she didn't take the poison herself? The chemist in London who sold Tall the prussic acid recognized Tall's dark cloak, but he had admitted that he bought it for varicose veins. The neighbors spotted him outside of the cottage as Sarah lay dying, but he no longer denied that he was there. He denied that he gave her the poisoned porter. And without witnesses inside that cottage... How could the police prove anything with just some circumstantial evidence?
3: You get all the different experts trying to find the evidence, and you get all the crime scene uh, examination, which is very rudimentary, and it's not coordinated. But it, it keeps coming back, doesn't it, to the clothing, the fact that the chemist in London recognizes the cloak, identifies him. That's, that's the crux, I think, this case. And it's entirely true that most cases at the time were circumstantial, unless somebody confessed.
0: The Crown prosecutor in charge of the case had a problem. John Tall did have a motive to murder Sarah Hart, but she also had a motive to take her own life. Which story would convince a jury? It can be so difficult to know what's really going on inside a person's mind, especially when, on the outside, they present themselves as a pious member of a respected faith community. You came along earlier as I visited John Tall's Quaker meeting house in Berkhamsted with Tall's great-great-granddaughter, Hillary Fox, her husband, Gerald Fox, and their granddaughter, Meg. It's an understated but fascinating place— we didn't stay as long as we'd liked because the construction sounds made it hard to talk there. So we decided to head back towards Gerald's nearby home to continue our discussion.
1: The car's just here,
2: Andy.
5: Oh, down here? What are we doing now? The car. Going home? Oh, okay. Well, unless, he, unless he's mowing the lawn next door. Well, you can
0: ask, you can ask your <laughs>
5: neighbor to not mow the lawn. <laughs> no, he'd be all right. Do they
0: moan every Saturday?
5: All day. (laughs) Really? Got this perfect sort of Elizabethan hedge everywhere, trimmed all the time. Got leaf out of place. Ours is is rampant at the moment.
0: Along the way, Gerald pointed out local landmarks, and we found ourselves talking about his own faith.
5: An up-and-coming bakery chain. Oh, really? Very good bread they do.
0: Look. Is it difficult to find? um, Are you all kosher?
5: Um, well, semi. Simi.
0: Uh,
5: Hillary won't let me eat bacon at home.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I would call that semi, I guess.
5: But as, as I said to you earlier, we belong to um, a faith group, which are um, mainly Muslims, actually, because oh. in our area, Luton, it's highly Muslim. Oh. And um, they know I'm secular. Mm-hmm. And the, the membership is people of all faiths and those of no faith. Oh. So... If you've got a a tendency towards the sort of tenets of Mm -hmm. faith and you're brought up in that sort of area. Because I had a very strict background. My grandfather was very strict. He started a synagogue off.
0: Yeah. It's obvious that the community Gerald finds in his group is important to him. So faith still has a place for him, even if he's not a true believer. We can't know for sure what John Tall felt back in 1845, but it's clear that he valued his connections to the Quaker community, whether or not he actually behaved according to their teachings. I wanted to ask Gerald more about what he imagined John Tall was really like, but before we could, there was the important issue of coffee.
5: Did you say I'm on coffee duty? you've got a choice of coffee, you can have instant, or you can have um, the cafetiere. I don't know which you prefer, but I find, personally, maybe just my taste, but I find that um, using uh, instant, unlike espressos, takes seconds to do a spoonful in, hot water, and you're done. No messing about. Hmm. And I don't know if it varies that much with the flavour of making. Really? Well, Do two different cups for you. See what you think. (laughs) (laughs) I'm
0: wound up like a top. On the ride back, the real debate about John Tall's character could begin. Gerald, Hillary, and their granddaughter Meg Edwards definitely don't see it the same way. Gerald doesn't believe that Tall was necessarily calculating that New Year's Day, just desperate look at his decision to wear the Quaker clothing during a murder. So tell me, do you have a different opinion of this story from Hillary, at least as far as John Tall's motivation and all of this?
5: Well, he's, he's a very complex character. There's nothing unusual about um, some of his behavior. What I do think is that he got into a situation where it was very stressful. I don't think he considered for a minute that his garb would be noticed because he was so accustomed to wearing that garb. He may have just thought, well, I've got my normal clothes on, why would anybody notice me? So I don't think that was a protection. He may not, you know, he probably wasn't thinking straight at the time. And I just just think it was one of those very sad things when people get into a panic, they do things... And he was being pressurized by his mistress. So um, I could have easily just put him over the top.
0: Gerald's not defending Tall's actions, just trying to understand how a man who helped his community in Australia could be such a monster back in England. Once again, Meg Edwards is far less generous than her grandfather in her assessment of John Tall.
1: He was an opportunist. He was presented a set of circumstances that he saw as unacceptable. Whether he was killing her to protect his family and to protect his identity, I don't know. But I think the point is, he was not thinking about making his wife a widow. When he was committing this murder, it was not, gosh, if I get caught, my poor wife is going to have to carry on without me. There's no way that ever came into his mind. He was quite happy making his children orphans.
0: And her children, Alfred and young Sarah, were both orphans. There would be no family to take them in. Without resources, who knows what might happen to them. Luckily, a guardian angel would soon step in. A very unlikely guardian angel. Sarah Hart's neighbors in Salt Hill despised John Tall, but the people who knew him in his own village of Berkhamstead refused to believe that the good Quaker was a killer. And his dutiful wife, Sarah Appleby, stood by his side. She couldn't be married to a murderer. She was a wonderful woman, a woman who hoped to help girls just like Sarah Hart to learn and to grow. Sarah Appleby had a conscience, but in the back of her mind, there were doubts. And perhaps the man she loved wasn't the kind Quaker he had framed himself to be. On the final episode of this season of Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right...
1: It is such an interesting thing that he's so self-sabotaging all the time and he makes the same mistakes over and over again and I think that's best shown in the fact that this, yeah, wasn't the first major crime he committed. I don't think it's reasonable for us to say that he was entirely driven by business and entirely driven by things that made sense to him because a lot of his actions don't make sense at all.
3: This is unusual, this kind of crime, but yeah, I think people lived in a state of fear and it was all very much sensationalised by the press so, you know, that didn't help. He may even have poisoned his first wife, Mary, because... uh, I wondered about that. There are hints about it in various research, because she wasn't Quaker, which is what he wanted in the end. So he may have been giving her completely the
0: wrong things. If you love a good, real ghost story, my audiobook, The Ghost Club, is available wherever you get your audiobooks. I can't wait to tell you the real story about the world's most famous ghost hunter, who was the head of the world's most famous ghost club, and how he investigated England's most famous haunted house. Please also check out my book, All That Is Wicked, which is a deep dive into the criminal mind. This has been an Exactly Right Tenfold More Media production. Producers Jason Whaling, Alexis Amorosi, and Natalie Wren. Editors Jason Whaling and Kate Winkler-Dawson. Researcher Kate Winkler-Dawson. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at TenfoldWarWicked and on Twitter at TenfoldWar. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldwarwicked.com. Follow Tenfold More Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.